Welcome to Pillar and Ground Podcast. I'm Chad Middlebrooks, pastor of discipleship here at LNPC. And this episode is a Pillar and Ground questions episode where we seek to provide biblical perspective for today's pressing questions. And we're continuing a conversation today that Will Nettleton, pastor of Mission and Worship here at LNPC, began on how we share the gospel in an ever-changing world. And we're leaning on a book that Will and I used for a Wednesday night elective back in the fall of 2022 called Telling a Better Story by Joshua Chatrow. And in the last episode, Will sought to answer the question of how do we share the gospel and talk about God in an age of so much skepticism. And Will talked about how the ground has shifted when we talk about evangelism because no longer are people's stories overlapping like they used to in previous generations. And as Chatra says in his book, we're now living out of different frameworks, different meta-narratives, different stories. And so we as Christians are living a different story than our neighbor, our classmate, our coworker is. And our story in some ways is confusing. It's no longer relevant in their minds. And so the common category assumptions that used to be there in previous generations are no longer there. And as we'll discuss, there have been historical shifts over the last many years that have accounted to where we are now. For the Christian, the question then becomes, how do we begin to share the gospel with someone whose basic assumptions about the biggest questions of life are vastly different from our own? And Chatra argues that we need to tell a better, a more compelling story. But in order to do this, we must go inside their story to understand the story that the individual is operating out of. And once we've gotten inside their story, we can then begin to show what he calls the plot holes in their stories. And then from there, begin to work out and introduce them to the Christian story. So in this episode, we will investigate some of the challenging assumptions that people today live by that can actually make it challenging to communicate the gospel uh, for the believer. And then we'll try to apply Chatterall's inside-out apologetic to those assumptions. I was reading not too long ago in the Institute of American Church Growth a report that 14,000 Christians recently that were polled, 90% said that they came to Christ through a friend or a relative who invested in a relationship with them. And so this got me wondering, how many of us in our congregation, or you listening, would say that a friend or a family member was instrumental in your coming to faith in Christ? See, building relationships matters, and they are crucial, especially in today's cultural climate when we talk about engaging the lost with the gospel. And I think the old adage still remains true that people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. So not viewing people as a project or as something to a problem to fix. Now, I grew up in the car business and around the car business, but I know very little about what happens under the hood of a car. And even today, when I take my car in to get serviced, when the service manager calls me, they use very elementary language so that I can understand it. And as Chatra explains in his book, we as Christians need to be aware of the points at which unbelievers sometimes sense that there's something that's not quite right, while at the same time not making the assumption that people fully understand the story that's actually powering and driving their lives. And so the second half of the book, Telling a Better Story, moves more into the practical outworkings of how the Christian story can be communicated to non-believers so that they can understand what's actually going on underneath the hood, as it were, in their lives, what's going on in their hearts with maybe the dissonance or the disappointment or disconnection that they might be feeling. And so God graciously can, and He often chooses to use His people to show the non-believing world how the gospel brings healing and how it brings restoration to that which is broken. 
Now, there are five cultural assumptions that Chattrall highlights of how people tend to instinctively assume that the world is. And he shows how these assumptions can make communicating the gospel a challenge. But then he applies the inside-out approach to challenge these habits of thinkings. Now, it's important to know that Chattrall is not saying that we simply dismiss anyone who holds these assumptions. Rather, we actually seek to engage with people where they are, with their faulty assumptions and all, to reveal how what they're truly longing for in their hearts actually can't be reconciled with any secular narrative. Instead, they must see their story fitting in with a greater story of God's redemptive story. Now, Chattrall says on page 74 of his book, the story of Christ is the true story of the God who is behind all that is true, that is good, and that is beautiful. And Inside Out is about helping others see what they have always been longing for can only be found in Jesus. Now, as believers, for us to engage the lost with the gospel, it will involve very intentional, much intentionality in our relationships. It will also involve us to be curious as we move into those relationships, asking a lot of questions, getting to know the individual. And it's also involved listening a lot, and at times listening a lot more than we are actually speaking. It will involve perseverance, actually taking the time and being patient and submitting these relationships before the Lord in prayer being very prayerful to the Lord will provide opportunities that we can speak in with the gospel. Now, we obviously on this podcast don't have time to dissect all the five assumptions that Chattrall refers to in his book, but just to, to list those, the first assumption is, I don't need God or religion. The second assumption, you have to be true to yourself. The third assumption, the ultimate goal in life is to be happy. Fourth assumption is, it's okay to be spiritual, but not to say that your religion is the only way or attempt to bring it into the public square. And then lastly, the assumption that Chattrall uh, looks into is we've progressed beyond faith and myths to reason and science. Now, in this episode, I do want to discuss one of these assumptions just to see how we can apply Chattrall's inside-out apologetics to our neighbors and our coworkers and classmates and friends who do subscribe to these various cultural assumptions. So this morning, let's look at you have to be true to yourself. Now, this idea of expressive individualism, as it's become known as, is the belief that each and every single person has the right to feel, believe, and to think about themselves however they so choose. And really, you can go a step further, and after you discover your real self, you're free to express yourself. And in fact, the culture would say you must express yourself or you're not being true to yourself. So forget about what everybody else thinks. Forget about the moral compass of right and wrong. Life is about you and about your fulfillment. Now, this idea of being true to yourself, we see it everywhere today in culture. It's in reality shows, whether you're watching America's Got Talent or The Voice, or it's in music and lyrics. I was even watching the other day an Eckridge Sausage commercial, and the tagline at the end said, You do you which really sums up this whole mantra and assumption of be true to yourself. Now, there are certain things obviously tied to this assumption. One thing that is assumed is that we can actually have pure desires. Also, there's an assumption that freedom is achievable through self-actualization. And then there's the assumption that we can actually resist external pressures to conform. And Chattrall in his book uses a great example of how the culture uh, is really um, going against what they're, the mantra that they're trying to put forth as he uses a Jeep Renegade commercial to show how the culture has moved beyond outward, looking outward, to actually looking inward to ourselves. 
Now, the commercial features Halsey, which is a singer-songwriter who says these words. She says, I've chosen to be loud, to be unique, to be authentic, and unapologetically me. I'm good at it because I'm unafraid. And every time someone wants me to be quiet, I speak louder. I am Halsey, renegade. But, but as Chattrall rightly notes, upon the slightest reflection, one should wonder how purchasing a mass-marketed Jeep could ever constitute as being unique or unapologetically me. In this way, in one beautiful, produced, and self-contradicting minute, the commercial presents the defining moral ethos of our time, Chetra says. So where does this assumption that we have to be true to ourselves fall short? Where does it break down? Well, we as Christians know that the human heart is sinful, that we are depraved because of our first parents, Adam and Eve, and the fall that happened in the garden. And even Genesis 6 tells us that the thoughts and intentions of the human heart are only evil all the time. And James tells us in James 1 that each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. And then that desire, when conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when fully grown, brings forth death. Or the prophet Jeremiah, he says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Even Jesus, in his ministry, he exposes that the real problem with us is, in fact, our true self. He says in Matthew 15, he talks about how it's out of the human heart that evil thoughts and murder and adultery and all manner of all other things come out. And so he says and exposes that the real issue is the heart itself. Now, because our desires are sinful, we're easily misguided by our desires. Our desires change like the wind, and we know this. We are unstable at best with our desires. And so we have to ask the question, do we really want this to play out, not only in our own lives, but even thinking as parents, do we want this to play out in our children? Do we really want them following each of the desires that they have to its fulfillment? I think we would all answer and agree, no, because we can only imagine the devastation and the consequences that will result from this. But the goal with this mentality is to throw off any external expectation imposed on us, any kind of conformity, and we're supposed to look within ourselves. But the truth is, we're all shaped by external factors. We are all conformist in some ways. It is impossible to look internally to find your identity because the culture is always shaping our desires and it's telling us how we should feel and what we should pursue. And if this wasn't the case, do we think that companies would actually spend the millions and millions of dollars they do every year in advertisements? No, it works. We are always defining ourselves by those around us, by our community in which we live and work and move. So how do we go inside a person's story who believes it's necessary to be true to yourself? Well, we need to begin to ask questions related to identity. Every person wants to be affirmed that their life has value and worth. And we instinctively look to other people and other ideals to know what we should find our identity, our worth, and our happiness in. So we can begin to ask questions related to what's most important to the unbeliever. Questions like, what do you find yourself devoting the most time and energy towards? Or, what drew you to the group of friends that you hang out with? Or, why do you value your friendships on social media so much? Or, if we've noticed that they put a lot of time and a lot of energy in their work and their career, we can ask the question, why do you think you devote so much time to your career or to your hobby or to your toys? And just as we can often, as Christians, underestimate how influential people and ideals can be in our lives and impact us, We want to help the non-believer to see how the search for significance, the search for validation, causes us to seek affirmation from others around us. See, every human being 
knows what it's like to put our identity in something and then to be let down and disappointed. As Christians, we can use the language like identity and validation to build this common ground with a non-believer, to show how we all seek to secure our identity and our worth in something or someone. So then we can go kind of going outside and pull back to look at the, the better story of the gospel. We can go outside of ourselves and go outside in that conversation to bring the believer to see that there is a better story. And helping the non-believer to see that we all pursue validation and affirmation in something or someone to give common ground to show how we all have pursued finding our identity and finding our value through whatever that may be. Maybe it's our career, our relationships, money, or sex, or material possessions, or power. And we can show how we've ultimately been left wanting. We've been left unfulfilled. And even posing the question to the person we're talking to, have you ever found yourself frustrated or even empty after pursuing something that you thought would provide satisfaction and fulfillment? It can help them begin to think there is something better and something bigger than what they're experiencing. And then we can follow up that question with something like, what if there is a source for identity that provides stability that can withstand the difficult seasons of life? And then we can begin to tell them the Christian story is the one that provides the right answer and the only answer. And we can share how we can live in right relationship with the one who pursues us to provide stability, to provide security and love and care, not only that we need, but that we're actually desiring and longing for. As we are restored to right relationship with God, we can actually live in right relationships with the world and with others around us. And we can further share how the work of Christ, his life, his death, resurrection, and ascension allows us to be free, to enjoy the created thing without it either destroying us or defining us. And because when our identity is in Christ, it allows us to see people as image bearers of God rather than commodities to use or abuse or even to find our worth in that we find the culture doing today. So what about when it comes to morality, living with the assumption that the goal in life is to be true to yourself? It must produce ethics based simply on personal preference then, to each his own. So what does it look like to go inside a person's story who's living out of this assumption? Even if someone denies that morality, that right and wrong exists outside of our own perceptions or feelings, the truth is people nonetheless live every day practically as though objective moral judgments do exist. And so as Christians, we must seek to show the non-believer and the skeptic how their story is actually borrowing from the Christian story as it relates to morality and truth. For example, the desire that they may have for justice or the desire to see the alleviation of, of the oppressed and the poor or the disdain they might have for the hypocrisy of politicians or the desire for justice for the drunk driver who destroys the lives of an innocent family. So we need to help the non-believers see that how often they are borrowing from the Christian story and acknowledging some sense of morality, some standard of right and wrong. The secular philosopher Luke Ferry admits, he says, I cannot invent the imperatives of the moral life. And he goes on to say that truth, beauty, justice, and love seem to impose themselves on me as if they came from elsewhere. So the question we must pose to the non-believer is, where do these things come from then? Where do the, these morals, the standards of right and wrong, where do they come from? If they come from outside of ourselves and they're imposed on us, where do we ground this morality? Now, some would argue that this morality is grounded in the culture or it's grounded in science. 
But as we go into their story by asking questions and seeking to understand where they're coming from, we can then go out to the better story by pointing to the gospel. We can help the non-believer move beyond culture or science when we're discussing morality to that of purpose. So for example, what do we mean when we consider a car to be good? Well, a positive evaluation is dependent upon our understanding of what a car's purpose is. That car was made for a purpose. Now, if we think that the car is designed to serve as a closet, then we'll evaluate that car differently than if we understand the car to be made for getting from point A to point B. So understanding an object's purpose is essential for knowing whether it is good or whether it's bad. So if humans were made with no purpose in mind, then there is no real morality. But we as Christians need to show the non-believer that there is indeed a purpose for which we are made. For Christians, our basis for morality is God himself. As God's image bearers, we are to reflect the glory and live out of the truth that comes from him. We're obligated morally to the God who made us. And so the Christian story provides a framework to support the human need for value, for moral obligation, and for purpose in life. So any other secular story fails to provide adequate answers to these things related to morality. Well, what about when it comes to the idea of love and being loved by others? Now again, we must go inside the person's story, and we know that every human being longs to know others and to be known by others. We all long to love and be loved. So we can seek to find common ground here in another person's story as it relates to the desire that every one of us has to belong to something bigger than ourselves, whether that's a family, whether it's some group or organization that's devoted to a common cause. But our culture's emphasis on being authentic can make it seem as though it is a move away from community and relationships. But really, in reality, this quest to find yourself, to be true to yourself, it's really just one search for a new community to find love in. It's important to point out to the non-believer that each iteration of someone expressing their individuality and being true to themselves, whether it's their style of music or the clothes they wear or the car they drive, the set of beliefs that they hold, there's a bunch of other people that are expressing their individuality in the exact same way. This reminds me of the uh, commercial, the Facebook groups uh, that was on a few months ago that was showing all the different online Facebook communities there are. And you can find one for just about any uh, thing that you can think of. And so regardless of how much culture pushes individualism and expression, there is an innate longing for connection and for community through life-giving relationships. What we find is that when many non-believers, they'll agree with us in talking about experiencing true love is of the utmost importance as a human being, whether that's through friendships, through family, or through a partner. But a good question opposed to the non-believer regarding love is to ask them, define what you mean by love. By scientific secular accounts, if there is no God, then we're simply the result of natural processes. And then love is nothing more than a physical reaction in the brain, just a, a chemical condition or a drive that has been passed down from our ancestors as this cold instrument of survival. But posing this question can actually help the non-believer wrestle with their own understanding of love and to see the gaps and the holes in their definition. And then we can even ask them, does the story that you've assumed, does it actually commodify love? And if so, can love truly flourish under those assumptions? And this will cause them to evaluate not only their definition of love, but also how they are practically viewing love in their own lives and in their relationships. 
Because what expressive individualism does is it causes us to view others, our neighbors, our friends, even in our marriage, as instruments for our own self-actualization. Cultural narratives of achievement teach us that we have to do things to earn love. But when we feel like we are paying in more than we're actually receiving in the relationship, then what will happen is we'll either abandon those relationships or we'll struggle with bitterness and resentment. And so we can ask, if the ultimate purpose of life is self-fulfillment and the means of achievement, how can you treat others in your relationships more than simply commodities to help you get what you want and what you're after? Another aspect to bring up to the non-believer is the issue of pride that is ingrained in every heart. Pride makes it extremely difficult not to resent others who have success or happiness. I see, as Lewis says, he says, pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. And Chatra says that we can help the non-believer see that this by asking if, if they've ever had a friend be congratulated or rewarded for their efforts. And you really want to be happy for them, but you find yourself actually resenting or maybe even hating that person because of the accolade and the affirmation they've gotten, even if it's just in secret in your own heart. And what we want to show is that the modern quest for self-fulfillment actually undercuts our ability to truly know others and to be fully known by them. And so again, after we go inside their story, we need to pull back and go out to the bigger story, the better story. And as we move out to the better story, we may find that someone may respond and say, but I don't live like that at all. I do understand what you're saying about expressive individualism, but my relationships are not like that. And maybe they do sacrifice in their intimate relationships. But in this case, we want to affirm that this sacrifice of personal freedoms for the sake of others is really more parallel to what the Bible teaches about true love. And therefore, maybe even without even acknowledging it, we can reveal that the person is admitting that personal sacrifice is necessary for deep life-giving relationships to happen. And acknowledging this can actually open the door to sharing about Jesus's life and his teaching so that love and true connection can be seen in a new way, in a new light for them, and in a proper way that God has designed it. And when Jesus says in places like Luke chapter 9 that we must die to ourselves, to our desires, our freedoms, our agendas, and he gives us rules to live by, but he's actually inviting us to something deeper, something truer, a truer kind of flourishing that we were made to experience. Or the Apostle Paul who teaches in Romans 12 that we are to weep with those who weep and to rejoice with those who rejoice. Everyone longs for this kind of connection, this kind of community at a heart level. But the problem is this kind of community is impossible if everyone is only looking out for themselves. And in order to find our true self, we must see it in Christ. Because as Jesus says, the most amazing thing is, is when we actually deny ourselves, we actually become the real person that God has intended for us to be. And so by trusting Christ, our primary identity changes and we become a child of God who is fully known and fully loved by the one who created us. And once a person realizes that they're accepted, not because of any achievement or any work on their part, this can begin to radically change a person from the inside out. Because knowing I'm accepted frees me to love others without seeing them as impediments or seeing them as competition or even as objects to use for my gain. And so we can point to the fact that our deep-seated longing for relationships reflects something greater that has always existed. And we can point to the Trinity, to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, where there is perfect union, perfect communion as they relate to one another. 
helping the non-believers see that God is personal. He's a God who helps to give, gives clarity as we show how and why we long for relationships in our lives. And we were created, we were wired for those relationships. And so the Christian God is the only God who has always existed in community. And God's love is not contingent, it's on creation. He's not dependent on creation in any way. And the gospel story offers a richer basis for love than any other meta story. Love is an ultimate reality that is found in God himself, the one who is love. So God made us for love, and he made us to love others and love himself. And so when we act against our created nature, when we're selfish and when we're self-centered, we are acting against our very nature that God made us. But Jesus has made it possible for us to enter once again into the reality of God's love. And in extending God's love to us through this work, he enables us by his Holy Spirit to truly love others. And only when we rest in the love of God shown through Jesus will we discover our true selves and live to the fullness that God has called us to. And so as we seek to engage family members and co-workers and classmates and friends with the gospel, we need to know that God promises to be at work in and through these relationships and these conversations to accomplish His purposes. And so let us listen well as those that engage with the lost, because most of our instincts are to go into declaring and to proclaiming, here's what you need to believe. But in order to answer someone, we really need to listen well. We need to find out where they're coming from. We need to learn more about their story. And so we need to listen well, but we also need to ask good questions. We need to probe into their hearts with care, into their story. And what we will often find is that there is hurt. There's wounds there in their story. And we want to take a genuine interest in the person, not simply to be out to win an argument. We also need to be prepared. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3 that we're to honor, we honor Christ as we're prepared to make a defense of our faith to those who have questions and ask. And so Peter's assuming there, there's going to be something provocative about the Christian life that will beg all sorts of questions. And so we should be prepared to attest to the hope that we have. And it will become apparent to others that our confidence is not in this world, but it's in Christ and the new heavens that is to come. As Paul exhorts in 2 Timothy 2, we also need to engage with gentleness, with respect. We're not just downloading content to someone. We need to have a posture of humility, and we want to be winsome in how we engage and how we disagree and how we point people to truth. We also want to think towards pointing to Jesus. We want to be intentional in our conversations, to realize though we can't cover everything in one conversation, that we want to be looking with the end in mind to point towards the one whom they need to see as their only hope. And then we need to commit to follow up with that person and to prayerfully submit those opportunities before the Lord to work in those relationships. And so let us keep these in mind as we seek to bring the gospel to bear in our relationships with those who don't know Jesus. On the next episode, we'll look at common objections that people have to the Christian story and how we can actually respond to those objections with confidence in the gospel. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Pillar and Ground. We hope that you will join us again for future episodes. Thank you.